Hello, TTB community, and welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Each week, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and some of our very own personal travel experiences. Joining me today is the very forbearing Robert Domena. All right. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, this this week, today, we bring you Brian Ahern. So he published a narrative memoir entitled The Adventures of Cosmos Lovejoy. So this book describes Cosmos Lovejoy's spiritual experiences in the late 1960s and early 1970s, giving him a sense of freedom, innocence, and destiny amidst years of political chaos, spiritual transformation, and social revolution. Before we get into the episode, the travel tip of the week is to not worry about the, having the perf perfect travel experience. Just have the trip you're you're having and be happy for that experience for what it is. Lastly, before the episode, just check out some of the cool things that we offer. How do you organize and plan your trip? So if you like to keep your trip organized like we do, you can use the travel journal and planner that we developed for our very own personal travel experiences. This will allow you to record things like the dates, the budget, the top destinations, the currency exchange rate, the time difference. It has a fillable calendar and it provides you the ability to write out your entire itinerary by the hour. In addition to that, it has a place to store reservation information, a packing list, a to-do list. And then at the very back, it offers you space to journal about your trip. You can find this travel journal planner on our products page, and once you download it, you have it forever, and you can reprint and refill it out for every trip you have moving forward. Now, if you do decide to purchase this, we encourage you to reach out to us with any tips to make it better. To help compile all of your info for the journal slash planner, we turned ourselves into cartoons to create a five-part video course that provides a step-by-step -step process to create the ultimate itinerary, including number one, navigation, number two, booking airfare, number three, blogs, research, and reviews, number four, itinerary building, and number five, safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. The goal of this video tutorial is so that you can become your own personal travel agent and learn how to be planned efficient trips now and forever, all the while saving you money to splurge on a nice meal or first class seat for your next adventure. Yeah. And now, so if you still think that planning your trip is a little bit too much, or you just don't have time to sit down and actually do it, I can personally plan your trip for you using all the information that we just mentioned. If you're interested in this, please send me an email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or visit our service pages on our website, and we can meet over Zoom to discuss the details of your trip. You want to contribute to the podcast? If you work in the travel industry, you can join us for a travel roundtable discussion by submitting your information through the TAT form on our website. You can also send us a travel article via direct message or at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com for the monthly Travel Bites episode. Support us by wearing us. Go to redbubble.com to find awesome gear and merchandise of the Traveler's Blueprint. Some of the cost comes directly to us to help support the podcast. We definitely recommend the hoodie and the hat and maybe a sticker or a travel mug. Whether you purchase a product from us or just want to learn about travel alongside us as we interview our guests, know that we greatly value your support as a listener of the show. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Brian, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Well, thank you, Elliot. And this is Elliot, right? And yeah. Bob is... I'm, I'm, I'm Bob, actually, I'm Bob. Elliot. Here, we, we can, re, <laughs> uh, we can restart. Well, we started again? I'm <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian, okay, so, well, yeah, yeah. Um, Brian, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. 
Thank you, Bob. I'm excited to be with you and I uh, love your site. It's a fabulous site. Thank you for having me. Sure. Yeah, we appreciate that. So you you wrote the book, The Adventures of Cosmos Lovejoy. And, yes, I did. Uh, yeah, this is going to be a unique conversation. There it is. And uh, we're, we're looking forward to this because the unique aspect of this conversation is going to be that everything that you did didn't just happen, didn't happen last year. It happened several decades ago when travel was significantly different than it is today. So absolutely, we're, we're, we're looking forward to getting it, getting into it. So, but before we do, um, I guess, where are you from? Where, where are you from? And then um, give us like the general synopsis of your book before we do the deep dive. Okay, great. Um, I'm from, I was born in San Francisco and uh, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1960s. And it was a, a, a psychedelic experience. You know, there was quite a bit going on. And uh, I, was a, I was a hippie. I wanted to be a beatnik, but the beatniks were gone and the, and the hippies are much more colorful. And uh, so I grew up there. I went to San Francisco State University and I uh, worked in North Beach at uh, hippie restaurants. And I, I studied art at the Art Institute in San Francisco. And, I was having a great life and, um, you know, I, I kind of thought, wow, God, I wasn't particularly religious, but I thought, you know, if you exist, I want to know, cause there's gotta be more. And, uh, and I had a dream and <clears throat> the dream came about a week or two after I'd said that. And what happened was, um, a friend of mine, and it was a beautiful dream. It was a spiritual dream. It was a feast. It was a banquet. And at the banquet, there was a beautiful woman across the table from me. This was like a 15th century castle. And there was a, a man and a very sinuous young man at the end of the table that was blessing everything. And I never connected it to my little quote prayer of, you know, if you exist, I want to know. But shortly thereafter, a friend invited me down to Mexico and we went to Puerto Vallarta. We drove down in his car and um, stayed on the beach at Mies Maloya, and he went back to San Francisco, and I stayed there and painted in a little palapa in the jungle. And one day, two girls walked by, came up the stream, was a very isolated place. At the time, about 10, there's hotels there now, but this was in 1969. And uh, these two women walked by, and I said, hey, are you Americans? And they said, yes. I said, you want some pineapple? They came in and I uh, gave them some pineapple, my little palapa. And one girl pulled a doobie out of her halter and said, you know, do you want to want to smoke this doobie? And we did. And as I handed it back to her, I looked at her and go, oh my God, it's the girl in the dream. And uh, we went up to a spring together. There was a spring nearby there. We went for a swim. We connected like soulmates. And it turns out that she had a whole spiritual history in Laguna Beach. And uh, she was about 18. I was 23. And uh, she had been uh, baptized in the uh, Gnostic uh, Christian scene, pre-Roman Christian, pre the church we know today, mm. and had a wealth of information in her tr in her car. She had her little Volkswagen bug down there and had six or eight, 12 books. And we spent a few days together and she laid out this feast of spirituality uh, without religion, the whole Gnostic scene. Christ light. And I realized the man at the end of the table had been the archetype of Christ. I was very much into Jungian uh, mythology and so forth. I was an artist and creative. So anyhow, that's how the story starts. That's the first wow. three chapters. <laughs> right. It goes on. It goes on uh, quite a bit after that. I 
you know, I'd learned to hitchhike at nine years old because I lived up a steep hill in the San Francisco area and I, it was suburbia, it was totally safe for a little kid. I tried it for fun at work. They did it a couple of times, and then never did it again until I was 13 or 14. And then I was free. I could go anywhere, anytime. I didn't need a car. I didn't need money. I didn't need somebody to drive me. And I just started on the road. And, and in fact, that was one of my, one of the books that I loved the most was On the Road by Jack Kerouac. And so in any case, um, I spent, the book covers from 1969 to 1974. And I did a lot of traveling. And that's what I hope we get to talk about today because traveling in the early 70s, there was no TSA, there yeah. was no, you know, and spe- we did some crazy stuff that I'd love to share with you. But that's oh, basically what, what the book's about. And, uh, and then in 1970, so, and I traveled, I was in Europe, I was living in France with the Sufis, and uh, I lived on ashrams in New Mexico and Colorado. and. Um, Spent a lot of time uh, in the real hip scene of San Francisco in the late '60s, early '70s. Wow, um, so so one thing I definitely want to get to, but I think later is going to be what you think of travel, like specifically comparing it to what it was like when you went, comparing it to today, and sort of the over tourism that we're seeing today. I want to get that to that to the end after we actually break down your story a little bit. But help me out with where maybe we should begin and sort of try to do this chronologically uh in a you know in a way because it's so you have all of these different experiences so is there is there a way that we can dive into it that sort of makes sense where we can sort of get like the full picture of this of your sure time yeah yeah you know um yeah you'd probably start in the 1950s in the united states when you know, there were these beatniks, there was a Cold War going on, um, television was black and white, you know, kids could play in the street and leave their bike out in the front lawn, nobody's going to steal it, you could, there was no threat. But there was a, an energy of fear, uh, and the whole thing of the Russians, and they tested the air raid sirens and once a week in San Francisco on Tuesdays for three minutes, and I, it was just, I hated it because I thought this is not the world I want to live in. And then Vietnam was going on in the early 60s. People were resisting it. There were race riots. The Kennedys were shot. Martin Luther King was shot. I mean, there was a, there was a lot going on that was not, um, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and Paisley colors, and uh, so forth. But that was coming, and that came in the late 60s. And so we came out of the 50s into the 60s, and all this stuff with politics and war and fear and black and white. And I really wanted a better world. I wanted to live in another world. And and I tried LSD, which at the time was legal. And uh, we actually got it from Stanford U- University. That's wild. Not, legal, not legally. I don't know how far to go in the illegal stuff. But uh, somebody, that's where they, let's just say, that's where they said they got it. The point of it is it was a pure psychedelic experience. It wasn't um, street drugs. And uh, and we used that and then it became illegal and Ronald Reagan became the governor of California. And, you know, uh, it was, a, the world started changing fast with regard to psychedelics. And of course, everyone was smoking marijuana or many, many people. And um, so, so that's where we start. And then in the 60s, as, a, as we moved into the, seven, the late 60s, 
Um, you know, Jack Kerouac in the 50s had written uh, On the Road, which was like just a, a story that went on. It was like one paragraph, two or 300 pages of a book that he wrote that was unique. And people were looking for what's what's going on, what's happening next. And so for me, I, I went to the Art Institute to, to I, I audited there. I went to San Francisco State, studied economics. And then, as I said, I went to the Art Institute and learned to paint and study young and man and his symbols. And so this is what was happening to me. And then, so the dream was to me, it was confirmation that there was a greater world. I, I transcended time. I had a dream in San Francisco, met a person in the dream in Mexico. And she laid out the feast that with this dream was symbolic of. So I was caught. There was no way that I was ever going to go back to the three-dimensional world, of time, space, and materiality. So it opened up for me. And I and I want when I came back from Mexico to Mill Valley, I Mill Valley, California was a, a psychedelic spiritual center, and there were teachers, there were Sufi teachers, there were yoga teachers, there were meditation teachers, all this was going on, and it all related to the books that the woman had shared with me. So I don't want to get, so rein me in here if I'm sure. Yeah, so, so all right, so I, I, have, I have a good understanding up to this point, and so you start to seek travel, right? I, I think that's kind of oh, where we right. are, based on everything you just oh, said, you kind of start to me. seek travel. So I wanted to say this because I believe that life is a spiritual journey. Okay, and so that's where travel comes in for me. And so for me to be free, uh, I, I could hitchhike easily. I had a car as well and a motorcycle, you know, occasionally. But I mean, if I want to, I would hitchhike. And so if I had a fight with my girlfriend, I would just go out on the road and hitchhike from San Francisco to New Orleans and call her up and apologize three days later and then catch a bus home. Okay, I mean, I just had, I was a runner. And so I ran. And when things got tough, I ran. And, you know, there's you know, things in the book, you can learn more about my background, why that's true. But so the spiritual journey and traveling, I, I didn't have a lot of money. And, um, you know, some of the traveling I did, I, I, I the, so it's a spiritual journey. And, and that's what the, the story is about the people that I met while I was hitchhiking and traveling. You know, you on your great website, you have a whole thing about laying out the agenda and knowing where you're going to eat and what you're going to see and what you're going to do. And and you also say, and it's important to be spontaneous. Well, I was like totally spontaneous. <laughs> and to me, it was all about allowing spirit to guide me. And uh, and so um I came back to San Francisco from Mexico and some things happened. I found myself on the road again. I hitchhiked out to to Charleston, West Virginia. I don't know how or why and ended up in Yellow Springs, Ohio at a unit at a college called Antioch College. And I was living in an abandoned building, meditating and and I sent out a message saying, God, you know, I was in the master of short prayers. I had met a yoga teacher in Mill Valley and I and I found a book on how to send messages telepathically. So I sent um, a message. Uh, his name was Yogi Bhajan. He was a Kundalini yoga teacher. And I said, if you, you know, um, I said, and my name was Cosmos Lovejoy, which is another story in the book. But I said, Yogi, this is Cosmos Lovejoy. Um, I want to connect with you. And I three days later of fasting, I got this voice that said be still 
And so I shut up and four days later, I, the same voice said, come now. So I hit the road and caught a ride from Yellow Springs, Ohio, all the way to Colorado Springs. The first, when I put my thumb out, I got a ride right away. And this one, so I thought, well, I'm not going to Mill Valley. He's probably not there anyhow. He had a yoga ashram in Santa Fe, which was a few hundred miles from Colorado Springs. I went down to Colorado to uh, Santa Fe and he showed up in Santa Fe a few days later and I became a, and I started learning yoga and I stopped using any kind of drugs and uh, got into natural foods. And we opened a little restaurant. To, we were living in teepees out on West Alameda in Santa Fe. And we set up a, a, um, a business, uh, it was called Nonox Conscious Cookery. It was a little organic vegetarian place. And so the point of it is that in my travels at that time, I had no agenda, I had no plan. All I knew was that I had stumbled, if you will, over something in a dream. It validated that there was more than in life than time and space. And so I got into the spiritual meditation yoga and then it, and it went on and, and, uh, and then I went to France and how I got to France is a story you want to hear. Okay. Because it's, yeah. You want to hear it or you yeah, want to wait well, yeah. to the so, end? So, so one Go thing ahead. before we get into that, I do want to jump into that. So um, you say that travel is sort of a spiritual journey. The purpose of your travel is to satisfy some sort of spiritual um, desire that you have. And so everybody has their own reasons for travel. Yeah. So so that's what it was. So so my personal, my the reason I like to travel, I sort of get like a dopamine hit from just like experiencing something new, meeting a new person, trying new food, seeing a new building that whole newness of right. of travel to me is very satisfying i get the the dopamine and it's like this is good this is the stuff um, yes and so yours is about finding something uh spiritual is it is it like is there a, what is there something specific though that you're looking for is it to to say that you you've sort of placed yourself in a new world and like, do you, is it like about navigating the new experience that you find or uh, what can you elaborate on that? It's pretty much letting go of control and surrender to a greater um, authority in, in my in my life and not an authority in a moral sense necessarily as much as an inclination, a path of least resistance, an opening to possibilities, not probability. Mm -hmm. Probability to me was just way too mathematical, three-dimensional. I'm not into, you know, I was into the what's possible. And part of it was was fear. Um, I was afraid I, I, I was a runner. You know, my niece told me once, oh, Brian, you're such a runner. And I thought, I didn't know she knew that I worked out. <laughs> <laughs> and she was a smart young woman who was saying, you know, you're just running from your emotions. So it was part of the traveling. And the other part of it was that I, I wanted to I wanted to get into the unknown. I, right. I didn't want to live in the known world. I felt, you know, if we talk about dimensions, the first three dimensions, time space or not time space, but length, width and height you know, or past, present and future. We live in a three dimensional world, you, me and us, uh, 
mother, father, child. There's a lot of threes in, in the reality. And, and there's a fourth dimension. And what that's what I learned about from Valerie in the book down in Puerto Vallarta was how to access the fourth dimension through yoga and breathing and exercises and things like that and prayer and, and the books that she had about the Essenes and the Gnostics and uh, Jesus the Christ of the Aquarian Age and all this kind of in the Urantia book and all this kind of stuff. So she had given me this feast. I had tasted that there was another world. I knew it and I wanted to find it and I couldn't sit still. I'm sorry if I, you know, no, like I say, no, you gotta rein me in. I kind of, I yeah, I know, I, I follow, I follow you. I, I okay, yeah, you're sort of trying to put yourself into these quote unquote chaotic or random or sort of um, unknown situations, and exactly the the spiritual aspect of it, the journey of it, is sort of how figuring out how you respond and how you grow and what you learn through those experiences. Yeah. And meeting the right person at the right time, being in the right place. Yeah. And yeah. just by, ver because there is, there's this, we live in an ocean of love. We live in an ocean of divine intelligence, whatever you want to call it. There's something far greater than my, my body, our bodies. It doesn't mean that we don't have a body. Obviously we do, but the energies and where I've gotten to now, 50 years later, as I work a lot, with the pineal gland and the pituitary gland and activating those substances, the, the, you, the endocrine glands that are the endorphins that you're referring to, um, uh, oxytocin and uh, DMT and benzodiazepine, they, they're all created in the brain. Uh, oxytocin is created, for example, with a mother and a child, this loving bonding, but people, you can actually create that in your life. And, and, and so this is beyond the book, but it's where the book took me is to how to access the pharmacology of my brain so that I'm not using exogenous or substances from the outside, but actually activating. And that's what Valerie was teaching me in the book was how to uh, how to activate the pineal and pituitary gland. Um, so that's that's kind of the it's all part of this journey that, that we're all on. And I think more of us are becoming aware that there is a power greater than ourself that is available if we're willing to give up control. But as control is based on the past and we think, well, this happened last time, so if I do it again, it'll happen again, instead of, well, how, what's a map of the future? How can I envision? How can I manifest? And so there's, I had to get out of the black and white 3D world of the 50s where I grew up I used psychedelics in the 60s to do it. And in the 70s, I, um, I was into the teaching yoga. I started a yoga school. We started a couple of restaurants. I went and lived with the Sufis to learn the Sufi meditation techniques and so forth. And then in the 80s, I got married and had a family and uh, it's an old other world. <laughs> and, and now I'm Different back. kind of an adventure. I had to write the book. I wrote my first notes on the book in 1970 six and i let it lay for 30 years before i really started writing it again in 2008 and then i just published it last year so <laughs> it's wow. uh it's been a process it's been a yeah. real process yeah. so two things one um 
Bob, what you were describing about the the urge to experience new things, there is actually a term for it. And it took me a while to remember it. And I actually had to do a quick Google search, but it's called neophilia. So neophilia is the need to experience new things. And a neo neophiliac is someone that needs to experience new things. And uh, on the flip side of that, uh, neophobia actually was around before neophilia. So the aversion or aversion to new things existed before needing to experience new things. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. And that's yeah. the fear concept. You know, the media is fear driven. And when television came out in the 50s, uh, it was all bad news and it was yeah. black and white. And then the antidote to that was psychedelics mm -hmm. and uh, whether it be mushrooms or LSD or mescaline or psilocybin or you know, there has to be, we have to break out of this three-dimensional box that we're in. It has, It is a box, height, width, and depth. Mm -hmm. And that's where the fourth chakra, which is the heart, which is the Christ, and I don't necessarily mean the religious Jesus Christ. I'm just talking about the, the metaphor of Christ uh, as the divine nature of humanity. There is something higher. It's light and love. And it's the fourth. So you want to get from the lower three chakras to the fourth chakra. I'm not into chakras too much in this book. Um, it's more of how I got to um, to France and living with the Sufis for two years and then coming back and living in Aspen for 10 years, uh, taking Let's a... Yeah, Let's get in the France. Let's get in the France and, and okay. hear about your story. It's my favorite yeah. story. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Because it's unbelievable. So I'm a hitchhiker and, you know, I, I go to Denver from Santa Fe. I open a yoga school and a restaurant. It's a wonderful experience. Uh, the teacher, the yogi that I connected with, he thought I would be better off married. So he arranged a marriage with a woman in the yoga ashram. And I and we were married for six or eight months before I ran off with somebody else because this was just impossible. I was an American boy. I wanted a cheeseburger, a white T-shirt, and a pickup truck, <laughs> and uh, and a girlfriend. So I ran off, and and that ran its course. And I'm in Washington D.C., and uh, I'm alone and living in a bookstore where I'm reading all these books about the spiritual feast again. And I saw a little sign that said Sufi meditation camp, Chamonix, France next month or something and i thought wow i'd like to go there i thought i'd like to hitchhike to france oh okay <laughs> i thought how can i do it and i saw something in it somewhere that said that piper cub or cessna or somebody that makes these little private airplanes in iowa or kansas flies them to gander newfoundland to refuel and then delivers them in london or geneva or Paris or wherever the wealthy European wants his own little plane. So I thought, wow, well, I could hitchhike to Gander and then I could, when these planes stop to refuel, I could kind of hitchhike. I could bum a ride, we'll call it, uh, on a private plane and get to Europe and I can hitchhike to Europe. All right. So I did. And I hitchhiked up to Bangor, Maine and I caught a ferry. A fishing boat in Bangor that went over to Nova Scotia through a freaking hurricane and got to Nova Scotia and 
hitchhiked across the island to wherever I was, I forget the name of the city right now, and got on a ferry, I had to buy a ticket on a ferry up to um, Newfoundland, and then hitchhiked from the ferry port on up to Gander to the to the airport. And um, so I'm there and uh, I found out that the ferries, ferry aircraft came through, they call them the ferry planes, they came in at night. So I got a job washing rugs in a hotel in Gander and I'd go up and spend the night trying to catch a ride. And I did the, the Mounties, you know, asked me what I was doing. And there was no, no TSA, no fear yeah. of nothing. It was like wide open. And so um, after three or four nights of being up all night and washing rugs in the hotel all day, I went to sleep and didn't go up one night and they fa had found they called me to tell me they had a pilot that would take me because two or three or pilots that I talked to wouldn't take me for various reasons. They had gas tanks in the passenger seat. They weren't allowed to do it. They didn't like me, whatever. And, you know, and so so that next morning I go or the next afternoon or whatever, I go up there and they said, where were you? We called you. And I was so out that I missed the call. And oh. I thought, well, damn, I'm, I'm going to go buy a ticket, you know, and I had a couple hundred bucks, so which was enough for a ticket to London in those days. And so I'm in Gander and Air Canada flies there once a day, Gander, London, and said I wanted to buy a one way ticket to London. The guy says, can't do that. You have to have a round trip ticket. It was starting to starting to get tighter, you know, can I, can I interject? Is, yeah, this might be a yeah. stupid question. Did passports exist yet? Well, I had a passport with me, of course. Okay. Yeah, I, okay. I don't mean to All say, right. of course, but passports have been around a long time, and okay. I, I had right. one. Yeah. Okay. So um, anyhow, he said, "No, you have to buy." It. I said, "How much is that?" He said, two hundred and fifty dollars." So I thought, "Oh man, what am I going to do?" And I turn and walk away, and there were three kids sitting there, three hippie kids, and um, they had seen me. I don't know. They somehow knew who I was, or. <laughs> that I was the yard dog at the airport. I don't know. And they said, uh, what happened? And I said, told them what it was. And they're like, oh, man, that's too bad. And um, this one guy says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 50 bucks if you, if, you know, you want to buy the round trip ticket. And um, no, he's yeah, he said that's what he said. And then uh, another guy said, yeah. And we can sell that round trip return at the American Express office in London, because there was a ticket exchange, a, a street exchange, people's buying and selling tickets in London outside the American Express. I thought, wow, I can't believe this. So it happens. I buy the ticket, get on the plane, fly to London. When I get off the plane, um, there was another, you have to read the book. There's another yeah, hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell, tell you us had all. to have a hundred dollars <laughs> to get into London. You had to have some cash. And so one guy said, I'll tell you the, another of these three guys said, I'll give you a hundred dollars. I'll walk through ahead of you. You follow me through and give me my hundred dollars back when we get to the other side. I thought, oh my God, you know, this is just unbelievable. So we did that. So now we're, we're in London. And we go to a park and put up our tents and sleep. Next morning, we go down to the American Express office in downtown London. And there's 20 or 30 people milling around outside, selling tickets, buying tickets. And um, 
So we, we thought, I, I thought, how am I ever going to find someone that wants a one-way ticket from London to Gander, Newfoundland? The first guy I talked to was that man. He was a young man like us, a young, we were boys. I mean, I was in my early 20s. He was a young man, and he had been traveling from Montreal around the world, had headed west across the provinces, gone all around the world, was coming back, and he had wanted to go through the maritime provinces on his return. The maritime provinces of Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. Uh, there's another, forgive me, New Canada, Brunswick. Canada. New Brunswick. And so he bought the ticket. And he, so, the, so now the guy that, uh, one of those three guys and me and him went back to Heathrow, went back to the airport. I took my return trip ticket to the counter. I handed it to the woman at the counter and I said, I want to fly back on today's flight instead of whatever the date of the reach. She said, no problem. She rewrote the ticket for today's flight. The three of us walk away from the ticket counter down through Heathrow to the gate. We get to the gate. I hand him the ticket with my name on it. He hands me whatever the cash amount was for that ticket. And he got on the plane with my name, required no identification. He just had a ticket, got on the plane. I gave the money he gave to me back to the guy, <laughs> the $50 to the guy. Oh, God. Unbelievable. Wow. He, flies, he flies back to Gander. We go back down to, to, I went to Dover, got on a ferry. I had like 20 bucks, got on a ferry to Calais, France and hitchhiked from Calais to the French Alps in Chamonix, which are like the French Alps, Geneva, that area, and went to that Sufi camp and um, said, hello, my name is Cosmos Lovejoy. I would love to work here if you'll let me. I've got experience in the kitchen. And I worked at that Sufi meditation camp for two summers. So, it, and there's more wow. to the story. <laughs> yeah, wow. So, so I love that about the ticket. It's so unbelievable. But that's why I hitchhiked. And that's why I was living in the world of possibility, not probability. Probability was pretty slim. Yeah. 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 So thank like you for that. letting me tell that story. Uh, it's in the book. Yeah. <laughs> the Adventures of Cosmos Lovejoy. <laughs> um, and and so as you're traveling, um, you're figuring out how to make money along the way. Just odds and end jobs and right. Well, uh, for example, when I came back from Yellow Springs and hitchhiked to Colorado Springs. I knew there was a yoga ashram in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. I went to Santa Fe and I went out to the, uh, and I stayed in, there were lots of places where you, there were crash pads, places got people just crashed. Somebody's house, he had a crash pad. We'd sleep on the living room floor and so forth. And so there was a, um, no, it wasn't a crash pad. It was run by probably an Episcopal priest but it's a place for a dollar, two dollars. You could spend the night and take a shower. And so I spent the night there, took a shower, went to the ashram, met the people. They said, no, you can't stay here. I went back and I thought, well, I know this is where I'm supposed to be. So I, I went in, uh, to the different restaurants and I found a Mexican restaurant that wanted somebody to wash pots. So I washed pots. I did that. Um, I did. I worked in the garden of another ashram in, in uh, Arizona when I was traveling through Arizona. 
I sold breathing masks in, because um, I was in Charleston, West Virginia. The air was so bad from the, the uh, whatever the corporate, I think it was called FMC. I don't even know what it stands for. Smokestacks, terrible air. And we were like, me and some other hippies were selling breathing masks to people to make them aware of how bad the air was. I worked in a bakery. I slept in Salvation Army halls. I, uh, I, I taught yoga for 25 cents or whatever it was in those days for a yoga class for an hour. And um, yeah, you know, I, wow. I was a bomb. Such... I was a, yes. I was a real hippie. <laughs> yeah, you are, you are the definition of a hippie. People, yeah. <laughs> other people claim to be hippies and they haven't met you. So this is, <laughs> this is so, this is such a fascinating conversation. Like to put it into context for our podcast, most of the people that we talk to are travelers who have planned out their trips they know right. their itineraries and then some we do talk to that they completely wing it or they do something very you know crazy uh we talked to a guy who like walked across madagascar and things like that uh -huh. um adventure types adventures yeah. adventurers yeah but but these experiences where you're just sort of on the road during a time when you could do it like that that right. is just so cool because it's just foreign and that's a funny well, word to use talking about travel but the way you're traveling in and of itself is completely foreign you can't do it uh anymore no. not yeah the vagabond hippie yeah no, well, vagabond and that's an interesting word when i was living in france i was at the sufi camp in the summers and this guy at the end of the summer some walking through the forest said you know he saw the camp he'd heard about it he said what are you we were closing it he said what are you going to do i said well i'd like to i heard i could pick grapes in the south of france he said, do you want to pick grapes? I said, yeah. He said, I'm going, to, I'm going home to Valence in the south of France on the Côte d'Aron. And he said, I'm going to send you a letter. I think I know where you can pick grapes. Three days later, I get a letter, general delivery in Chamonix, telling me to take this certain train to a certain place. And he'd pick me up. And he did. And I got a job <clears throat> for three weeks or four weeks doing the Vendange, picking grapes. And then I worked in that wine cellar for three more months before I came back to Chamonix in the winter, because the Sufi camp was closed, but I knew the people at the hotel and that ski resort because I'd been there in the summer and I got it. Oh, and actually I'd arranged it in advance to wash dishes over the winter. Uh, so I got a ski pass and I lived in this hotel and skied all winter um, before my second summer in, in, the, in Chamonix. That's, wow. That's wild. Do you remember the name of the winery? Yeah, it was uh, Paul Jaboulet, and uh, it's on the Côte d'Aron, and uh, they have, they're famous. They were shipping wine to all of the French embassies around the world. So uh, Paul Jaboulet, Tan, the Hermitage, and um, the, there's, it's in the book. Uh, you know, the man that owned it, Paul Jaboulet, was an old man who could not believe that he had a hippie with a ponytail picking grapes with all of his uh, Algerian grape pickers, and he gave me so much heat, um, but he liked me, and his son was the one who offered me the job working in the wine cellar after Vendange was over, so I actually worked in these limestone caves pushing bottles of Paul Jabolet wine out of the caves to the bottling area where we washed the bottles and put labels on them and shipped them off to the embassies. It's a fabulous wine. 
Wow. Dead. Yeah. The Cote, oh. the Cote d'Aron region that just that cult or that wine type is one of my favorites. I mean, oh, anything uh, from Southern France. Yes. Yeah. So good. Yeah. So, so I picked grapes and then skied and washed dishes uh, in a hotel. I washed dishes. My job was to wash the afternoon dishes. It only served lunch. So I could ski in the morning. I guess that's how it worked. And then come in after lunch and wash the dishes. There was no dinner. And actually the hotel was at the top of the Teleferique. A Teleferique is a cable car. So you're in the town of Chamonix, you get in this tube, holds about 40 people, and you go all the way up to the top of the mountain and there's a hotel. And the hotel was closed. So the chef and his wife and myself were the only people in a 50 room hotel with the most incredible views you could imagine. And the hotel room that I was in actually had a bath, which is a big deal for me, and a balcony and a view of the Mont Blanc, the 14,000 foot mountain there. And um, I had that room for free and I had a ski pass and I think they gave me a thousand francs, which I don't know, was 50 bucks or nothing. Yeah. So that's, you know, and this, that's why I, <clears throat> so I don't know what to say. Uh, the, this, the beat goes on. Yeah. Um, well, 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 here, how about this? I mean, so people are going to have to buy your book to really understand and get the details of your story. And, and because we, don't have the time to get into it too much. I want to also make sure that we include you know your your the things that you've learned about yourself, about yeah. the world, uh, you know, how it changed the trajectory trajectory of your life. So just sort of did you find what you were seeking? And like on a spiritual level, what did you learn? Well, absolutely I found what I was what I am seeking, as I'm still seeking it. Um, and that is the the presence um, of the and the the presence of the present moment uh, that life exists in the in the present moment. I don't want to get um, so I'm a student. I'm a, a, a I'm just learning. But I mean, I had so much happen. The divine intelligence is real, and there is a so for me, if I may. You know, we, we live in an ocean of love intended for our benefit. Uh, we don't tend to think that. We think we live in a three-dimensional world and we better look out and you're going to die anyhow, so what the hell. And that is not the real world. The real world is beyond time. You can activate the pineal and the pituitary gland in, in a way that you can have experiences like when I had these experiences in the adventures, I had no, I had very little divine knowledge other than what Valerie had shared with me at the, the Feast of Knowledge in, in um, Puerto Vallarta. Um, and so as I learned more and as I learned from about yoga and I learned about the Sufis, then this whole feast metaphor goes on because then I learned about the Lakota Indian and I learned about the, uh, the Buddhists and Tantric Buddhism and Guru Rinpoche and Taras. And um, I learned about the, the Huna of Hawaii. I lived in, in Hawaii and learned about Lemuria. And I learned this whole feast just kept unfolding in my life. But this particular time between 1969 and 1974 is what the book is about. And I fell off, Let's call it falling off the wagon, whatever you want. I, I got back to, there's there's three books 
I wrote the first one. That's the one we're talking about. The second one I'm, I'm currently finishing. And the third one I'm living. <laughs> so <laughs> I like it. So this this feast of knowledge that's been gifted. Um, I've met some incredibly beautiful people that have mentored me and shared their truth with me. And um, I'm, I'm going out talking about this particular book and the manner in which I'm talking about it, because it is as amazing to me uh, as it is to most people that hear that these things actually happen to someone over a period of five years. And um, so how has it affected my life? You know, I, I lived in Aspen for 10 years in 1974 to 1984. And believe me, that was a party town in those years in the late 70s. And there was a lot of um, uh, drugs and alcohol and partying. And, you know, and I, I kind of, I always knew I had my spirit. I don't want to get too far into that book, but I just want to say that, um, I, I, so there, so there was a period of my life that was not like those five years, those first five years. In 1983, I met a woman that I married and uh, opened another restaurant in Durango, Colorado, which is still there um, in Southern Colorado. Um, and uh, we had two children. We have two children. I moved to Florida, and um, and I got involved in a in a um, a material world of you know making money to support my family and so forth and had a whole experience but i started to recognize um how much i had been gifted in these first five years and um my as my children grew up and um my life changed i i i did a lot of uh had to make money and i and i did a lot of work like that i don't want to get into all the details until um i got I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer in 2010, and it was a gift. And uh, I declined chemo and radiation, uh, and that really woke me up to going back to the dream and to that I was responsible for my life and that I had created this. And so I decided that I would go to the beach and restore my soul. And um, <clears throat> so I, I uh, got to the beach on the northern shore of Kauai, and I started using herbs, and um, uh, and 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 I ch changed my life. And after five years, I was released from oncology supervision as a what um, a recovered cancer patient. That I um, I was I forget what the term is for it, Remission. but that was. Yeah, I had gone into remission, and it would, that was 12 years ago. I still eat the same herbs, and uh, I, don't, herbs? I don't... Can you tell us what herbs, please? Well, yeah, I use... Um, <laughs> uh, well, there's turmeric, ashwagandha, bacopa, green tea, milk thistle, yeah. and that's a whole other story because those are endogenous... Uh, those herbs activate... Um, my body's endogenous, that means it exists naturally, uh, antioxidant enzymes like glutathione, catalase, SOD, and by activating these, these um, glutathione, for example, can't, you know, free radicals cause all disease, and the, um, the glutathione absorbs free radicals. So that's just kind of the short version, but that's another big part of my story because uh, in the in the third book, 
Um, that all happened in Hawaii, and I got into the Hawaiian religion called Huna, and <clears throat> and I'm very grateful for all that. But uh, <clears throat> that's why it's a feast, and you know there's these different religious there's basics in the whole thing. Yeah. So it's it's my story, and you know, it's it's an incredible story. So can can I ask if you were to restart your experience over again, would you do anything different? I'd be a lot more grateful and present in the moment. Yeah. And not and not be so hard on myself because of course while I was doing all this hitchhiking and my friends were going to Harvard and Yale and or where they didn't I mean I had a couple at each school but I mean going off on their big professional trips and becoming doctors lawyers and business chiefs um I was out there hitchhiking and sleeping in construction vehicles on the side of the road and I was pretty hard on myself but um and so you know i think that uh, i would not be so judgmental of myself or others and and i do believe that it uh, so that's that's probably the main thing is that gratitude is the essence of impermanence and impermanence is a buddhist concept that the whole world's constantly changing yeah. when you stand up you, you know everything's changing whatever you move your arm it's change but I mean, there's massive, it's a kaleidoscopic change. Yeah. And, and gratitude is what allows you to suffer the loss uh, that impermanence brings uh, because you're grateful that you had um, whatever it is that you lost because we're gaining and losing all the time. Yeah. The only constant is change. So, um, Yes, I've been yeah. blessed, and you know, I don't, you know, I'm, I, I screw up, and I do stupid stuff, and I don't want to get into all the details, but I'm no mis, I, I ain't Saint misbehaving, you know. That's right. a, that's the name of a movie, by the way, of a guy named Wavy Gravy. And if you haven't seen the movie Saint Misbehaving, you should take a look. He was a hippie uh, back in Woodstock days, so yeah. I, yeah, that's all. That's all really. I, so I'm reading the book right now by Lucius Seneca called uh, On the Shortness of Life. Have you, are you uh -huh. familiar with Seneca or Marcus Aurelius or any of those guys that Stoic philosophy? Well, Seneca, uh, no, not specifically. Of course, I know the name Marcus Aurelius yeah. and Seneca, yeah. but I, I couldn't tell you their biography. Yeah, no, that's sort of like my outlet for a lot of what you're saying. It's just the, the, the way that I sort of chose to absorb it, I guess, in a way. Um, but yeah, it's just, I, I, I the the um one thing that is guaranteed is change and uh -huh. even if you look at everything within nature nature sort of uh you know configures a tree uh it disassembles the tree and then those same materials are sort of reconfigured and so the only thing guaranteed is that throughout you know the cosmos uh, yes. things yeah. do uh change constantly and mm -hmm. that is yeah it, it is all that's guaranteed so all you do get is the the present moment with the current configuration and then it just kind of goes along you don't need to be upset or, or or worry or be happy it's just kind of it is what it is i think that as a culture as a society we, we are going through a, a major change a reset whether you look at it through the eyes of covid or 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 digital awareness or what and you can't do the things that I was blessed to be able to do in today's world you you I you couldn't uh, travel the way that I traveled, for example, from Gander to London. Um, yeah. 
And although that Sufi camp still exists in France, um, it, it's, it's totally different. Uh, maybe I could get a job picking grapes in the south of France, but at that time, it was a blessing to be free. And so now I think today, the journey to freedom is through interiorization, through your study of Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, through the study of uh, esoteric Christianity, the Essenes, the Gnostics, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the uh, Nag Hammadi Scrolls. This ancient wisdom has the key for the new adventure, for, for the journey uh, into a higher frequency, because we've been living in space-time and without getting into it too much, we're moving into time-space. We have the option and time, space, time, space is infinite, time is limited. In time, space, space is limited and time is infinite. But time is a frequencies. This is uh, actually one, one teacher that has been, been instrumental in, in where I learned that particular um, bit of knowledge is Dr. Joe Dispenza. And he is, uh, someone that has been instrumental in the last five or seven years of my life with activating the pineal and pituitary gland. So wherever you go, I think the pineal, which is the third eye, is the key to, to conscious awareness of the fourth dimension, which is the present moment and which is loving. So the new journey, if you will, is interior and, um, there's a different kind of uh, itinerary and uh, different places to visit in terms yeah. of uh, meta metaphysics. And so there's a great analogy uh, with that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one that I'm definitely uh, that, that I've been working on exploring um, actually pretty recently, too, just within the past three years or so. Um, I really, really started to try to tap into that and um, understand it all what it means to actually live in the present. Um, and, and honestly, if the, the more you do it, uh, for those listening, if you do understand how you can sort of tap into that to then bring that with you when you're actually really traveling, um, yeah, really enhances and, the experience. Yeah. So what you say on your website about the consulting that you do and maintaining yeah. the spontaneity, mm -hmm. you know, um, that is, uh, you know, when I would go to, places and things would happen and i would just like how how did i get here and um it, it was just a refreshing way to live and it allowed me to be open to more possibilities yeah and i think that's what travel does because i've been a conventional traveler and um going to places and seeing the museums and the parks and uh, the events and eating in the restaurants and so forth and i know that when i'd find a restaurant that i didn't know about and it was a hit it was like so cool yeah so yeah right you know it's one, so of, that's that's, one of the great things yeah and, and i think that to have the the resource that you offer with your with the website and the consulting and then being spontaneous and and like you say uh, on your website, you know, don't be wrapped up and, you know, you, you can allocate an hour for this, but don't don't think, oh, my gosh, I only have an hour before I get on to the next thing. Right. If it took three hours before you left there and it was an amazing experience, you know, but you always have the structure to fall back on. Right. Which um, I missed sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, when I didn't know where I was going to sleep or 
you know, what, what I was going to eat. And that's why I said I wanted to share your website with my daughter because yeah. they're there and her fiance, my other daughter and her husband, they are very well organized people. They're more of your generation. They're in right. their 30s and they love that organization. And I think if I had the tools that you have with the digital laying out, you know, everything digitally, um, I would have been more into that than being this free spirit. But part of me being this free spirit was I didn't have the money and right, I didn't. Right. That's and a big I part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so in today's world, I think there are a lot of people that do have the money because just the way that the, the ratio between what things cost and what people are making for not for everybody. There are many people like Cosmo Lovejoy that that don't have the wherewithal to do that. But there are many people that had a difficult time doing it in the 60s and 70s because they didn't have the digital structure mm -hmm. of being able to have that on your phone or have a print copy in your backpack, know where you were going next, knowing the phone number and all this kind of stuff. And, right. You know. Right. And it, so, it, it's like it's it's hard to um, I, I, you don't really need to pick which one's better or which one's worse. Um, it's a shame, I think, that that me, my gender, we don't get to experience. We don't have the option. Even even if you don't plan it out, you can't really go anywhere that doesn't already have sort of paths set for tourists. Uh, right. The shops are already designed for tourists. I, we, I went to Peru and uh, restaurants in the in the sacred valley to Machu Picchu had hamburgers and french fries and so right. even if you didn't plan your trip you're still sort of stuck within a certain um you know set route uh and but at the end of the day like i think w when you do these things it's really about um it's not really about what happens to you it's like how you respond to the circumstances to the environment to the experiences that really sort of uh make up how enjoyable or unenjoyable your experience was um Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Pretty interesting. Um, we're, we're sort of winding down. Uh, we have a rapid fire round. I don't know if you listened to any previous episodes. Oh, yeah. 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 I think, and, and God, for, those, okay. for those listening, Elliot had to jump off and tend to his, his infant. So I'm going to do all of them before we do that though, Brian, uh, can you tell us where people can buy your book? Let's say the title again, where can people buy your oh, book? Okay. What's your social media, all that good stuff. So it's called The Adventures of Cosmos Lovejoy, and it's written in the name of Patrick O'Brien, because my name is Brian Patrick, and I changed everybody's name in the book because some of them are still alive, and, and I didn't want to offend anybody. Yeah. And so uh, I became Patrick O'Brien. So the author is Patrick O'Brien, and I have a publishing company here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, called Blue Corn Publishing. And that's the address for the website, blue, B-L-U-E-C-O-R-N, publishing.com. And you can buy the book there. You can. I made an audio book. I have an e-book and have the book uh, print on demand. So you can buy it there or you can buy it at Amazon and uh, Barnes and & Noble and uh, many other small independent bookstores that, that purchase it. So it's awesome. called The Adventures of Cosmos Lovejoy EXP. The EXP stands for expanding, and that's just the name. You'll have to read the book to find out why. But um, Blue Corn Publishing is my website. There's lots of photographs. Uh, there's a big Q&A about 
that people have asked and have answered. Um, and you can buy the buy the book there, and you can get the audio book there, or you can get it all at Amazon. So, right. um, the Adventures of Cosmos Lovejoy EXP, Patrick O'Brien, and Amazon or BlueCornPublishing.com. Awesome. All right, you Thank ready for you. the rapid fire round? Yeah, oh, yeah. I guess so. Let's do it. <laughs> I all right. Forgot five, about that. Just five questions, um, okay. and just first word, phrase, uh, okay. whatever you want to do. Uh, all right, number okay. one. What is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Trying. Oh, that's that's a first. I like that. I like that one. Yeah, that's what came to mind. You know, there maybe you it's because the travel begins, but yeah, you, you know, can't travel if you don't try. But that's the first word. Yeah. yeah, trying, trying in the sense that it, it, um, yeah, okay, that's what came. Uh, were up. you thinking? Were you thinking that it could be trying, like? Yeah, it could be trying, could be, you know. You might face hardships. Okay. All right, I, I think all right. at this point in my life, I don't travel as much, and I could never do what I was doing no. before. But I, no. I just gave you the first word. I don't know why it came no, up. That's cool. All right, number two. What is the uh, what travel book had the biggest influence on your life? Oh, um, it's that one that was big in the '60s. Uh, you know, it's kind of like TripAdvisor before TripAdvisor. Um, Hmm. Uh, I, for, I forget. Oh, like a, I like forget a, like a lonely planet type of book. Yeah, or? that's it. It yeah. was a lonely planet. Lonely okay. planet. It was probably a predecessor precursor to a lonely planet. Okay, like that type farmers. of book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess it was a <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it was a travel guide, and it was kind of like the relationship between the whole Earth catalog, which mm -hmm. you may or may not know of, I've, I've and Google, of yeah. and Google, right? You know, because the yeah. whole Earth catalog was kind of a print Google, you yeah, know, what yeah. you could get and where to get it and paper. Okay, so let's say the Lonely Planet. Number three, what is one practical thing travelers can do right now to enhance their next travel experience? Be open to possibility. And also to visit your website, because I think, <laughs> honest Thank to God, <laughs> I, I saw that for the first time today. I thought if I'm getting on this podcast, I need to know more. Yeah. And I actually joined so I could take your, your queries and, and learn about it. And I thought, great. wow, this is great information. I'm glad it could help you. Yeah. Uh, uh, number four. All right. So, so going the opposite direction, tell us one thing travelers should not do. Um, wow. Expect things to turn out exactly the way love it. <laughs> they think it's going to turn out. Yeah. Because if you'd reverse that question, what should they do? It would be to expect the unexpected. Yeah, right, right. There's I, I there's that's that's a good life advice, right? And just in general, there's yes. uh, wow, I don't know if I read it, listened to it. I don't know, remember how I absorbed this information. But uh, a lot of People are upset. Anxiety is induced by people having this idea of how things should go. So they're living, they're planning ahead in their mind how certain things should play out. So they have this idea of reality. And then suddenly actual reality comes in and changes that. And then they get upset. So if you just go into it, uh, understanding that you really don't know how it's going to play out, um, you'll be better off. Don't get your hopes right. up. Don't be too scared. Just kind of do it and figure it out and and live right. through it in the present moment. Right, coming back. Go with that. the flow. Go. Yeah, with the flow. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I love that answer. All right, so the last question, and I think this is this is my favorite question. Uh, <laughs> what is one piece of advice you'd give to yourself ten years ago? 
that I gave to myself 10 years ago. Now, what is one piece of advice you'd give to yourself 10 years ago? Maybe 10 years isn't long Oh, I would give to myself? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 10 years ago, what would I tell myself that, that, that would have been really good advice to, to hear? And that is um, what you think is more powerful than what you say. It's mm. great. It's great philosophical quote right there. I like it. Yeah, that's that's something that I've just become aware of in the yeah. last year. Well, that my I used to it. think my thoughts were something that were superficial, didn't really matter, um, and I could think you know whatever came up. And only recently did did I learn that my my thoughts really truly are instrumental in creating my reality. Yeah. And, and that they're more powerful than the words that I speak. Yeah, well, they sort of dictate the words you speak, right? In a way, right? In, right, but we, I, I used to think that, you know, I wanted to be eloquent or I wanted to be, I don't know what the words are, I wanted to be well-spoken, mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to say things succinctly and so forth and so on. But then when I realized that, you know, there's some thoughts I really don't want to have in my mind and I don't just because I have a thought doesn't mean that it's valuable or even true. Mm -hmm. So the thoughts that I think that's where I got this, the thoughts that I think are more important than the words that I speak. So that's the advice I would give myself. In other words, to pay more attention to what I was thinking about than how I sounded. I like it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, so this was the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Thank you for coming on. I have to buy your book. I'm adding it to my reading list for this year. Um, <laughs> oh, because I'm, I'm very curious. I'm very curious how I'd like to get more details and information on your actual story. So um, this is a good, like, Thank you. broad, uh, yeah, discussion on it. But I can tell that there's a lot in there that we didn't get into. Well, well, thank. let me please thank you very much for having me on the podcast because uh, I, I've loved writing this book. I know that some of the people that read it really enjoy it and have, have told me that. And, and it's, uh, it's fun to be a part of it. Um, and, I'm, and I'm happy to be Patrick O'Brien. So uh, thank right. you again for having me on the podcast. Of, of course. Thank you. I wish I could go back to the 1960s or 1970s and travel before the travel boom that we're living in right now, the over tourism problems, all that stuff. Yeah. And it reminds me, you remember the conversation that we had with Mag Diamond? Yes. And yes, she was yes. traveling in like the forties and fifties. Uh -huh. And he, he, I mean, started in the forties and fifties all the way up through today. Yeah. And it just seems like you would have had the opportunity to experience like Machu Picchu would have been vastly different. Ooh. Rome would have been incredibly different. Um, I mean, Hell, going to the, we just talked about this in the travel bites, but the safaris yeah. of today would be very different. That does not exist. Even Antarctica. I, I I don't, I forget the number, but the amount of people going to Antarctica now is absurd. Yeah. Absurd. It used to be difficult to get there. And now it's anybody can. You know much. what we need to do? We need to do, you and I, we need to just get dropped off in the middle of the Amazon jungle and just make our way through. That will be authentic. Naked and alive. Yes. For for a short period of time. I don't think I, I, I might maybe make it a week. Okay. Then, then I'll be naked and dead. All right. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for listening to the podcast. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, Thank you for listening. Now, if you want to, if you want to give us a rating on iTunes, that's an incredible way to support us. Um, 
You could also buy us a coffee through the link in the show notes or on our Instagram bio. And, um, and that's really it. Thank you. We appreciate you as a listener. Stay safe, stay healthy, and tune in next week.